Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So excited to have you here for another episode of the podcast and really excited to have you here for another episode where we are doing a masterclass. And today we are doing a masterclass on mindfulness. Now, this is like a Tim Ferriss level deep dive episode. If you are interested in meditation and mindfulness, this is the episode for you. We talked to my friend, Dr. Milena Bradicevic on increasing non-dual awareness, Ellie Weisbaum on mindfulness for life, and Dr. Ellen Choi on daily mindfulness practices. So that's a lot, but if you are interested in mindfulness and you want to do a deep dive and you want to learn from the best of the best of the best, the top experts in the world, some of the most successful people on the planet, then this is the episode for you. If there has been two huge trends that I've seen in the world over the last six years, as I've been traveling around doing speaking events all over the planet, uh, with some of the coolest people I've ever, you know, I will ever meet. One of the consistencies that I've seen is that people are quitting drinking and people are practicing mindfulness and meditation. So if you want to learn more, this is the episode for you. All right, here we go. Let's do a deep dive into mindfulness on this masterclass. Elena, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invite. Nice to be here. So- yeah, it's great to speak to you and actually see see you on video as we're recording this. Since uh, as an extrovert, it's um, kind of cool to actually like see people in person for a change. So it's even if it's through a screen. I agree. Um, so tell me a little bit more about like how do you go from an entrepreneurial journey, uh, business school, into data visualization, uh, you know, and an exit, and then now into deep explorations of mindfulness. Like, how does that? Take me through that journey because that is not. It doesn't just make typical. sense. It does not just make sense <laughs> for me as to how that went. One led to the other. I need. To, I need to understand that better. I love that. Well, I'm gonna try to make sense of it. Uh, but uh, so yes. So my whole family was in technology. So my my background is kind of more ec- economics, business, technology. Um, I was also kind of passionate about that too. Just the kind of business development side of things is always very interesting to me. Uh, yeah, so I um, uh, had a company with my brother for 13 years in software. Uh, we did a data visualization tool. Uh, it was actually called DataZen <laughs> at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, so I did that for, for a while. But um, actually in my undergrad, I also did a minor in philosophy. So I always was kind of interested in the philosophy of the mind specifically. So I kept kind of reading on that, you know, everything from ancient philosophy to kind of more modern stuff. Um, and um, and then when I was um, uh, into the business, I think it was about three years into the business, I actually developed clinical depression. So that kind of took me by surprise and it kind of encouraged me to to really inquire about, you know, what are the kind of necessary conditions for a healthy mind and how can we kind of understand the mind better so that we can prevent things like uh, depression, anxiety from occurring. What Lead me through what happened when you experienced clinical depression. And the reason why I ask is because mental health is such a huge challenge right now. Mm -hmm. And prior to COVID-19, we knew that one in five people would you know, struggle with mental mental health at some point to the point where they would need um, access to a medical professional or request access to a medical professional. We know that anxiety rates are higher than they've than they've been, uh, and that that is increasing. We know that burnout's increasing. So I'm curious about your your experience of you know working in this business and then landing mm-hmm. in a place where your where your mental health is 
you're struggling with mental health and then how you got out of it. That would be really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very good question. And, and, you know, from this perspective, it kind of all makes sense, right? Because I was really working um, all the time for about three years as an entrepreneur, as you know, you know, it just, there's no one there to replace you. So, so kind of nobody asks you, you know, how are you feeling or would you like some time off? That just is not even um, in the cards, right? So for the first three years, I was pretty much, you know, head down, just working all the time. And then um, I just kind of remember kind of losing a sense of like, um, you know, kind of this integrated experience of of life and more kind of just not being able to basically, you know, typical depression uh, steps, right? You kind of start feeling more uh, not motivated, maybe isolated. Um, your energy is really down. Uh, but now from this perspective, I, I can see, you know, I wasn't rejuvenating um, as well as I should have. Um, I probably wasn't physically as active as I needed to be. Um, and then also, you know, as far as the creative kind of work, um, maybe it wasn't challenging enough. It wasn't kind of stimulating enough. Um, so yeah, so all of, all of those things kind of led to basically a burnout, you know, um, just, um, and, and a lot of the things that I've kind of studied on the, uh, nature of the mind afterwards kind of has to do with, um, this need to re-energize. Right. And, and to really um, and I know, you know, a lot about that, too. Right. To really kind of try to have a healthy lifestyle and a sustainable lifestyle. Um, so that's one of the key things that I talk about, for example, when I work with uh, companies today, uh, you know, we talk about energy management. How do you become aware of your energy levels throughout the day? Um, how can you renew systematically your energy um you know, in, in specific ways at the body level, at the mind level, at the emotional level and the spiritual level as well. I love so it. Does How did you, <laughs> it, well, it, it's just so fascinating and I congratulate you on, you know, that, that journey, which I'm sure is easy to summarize in a few minutes here on a podcast many years later, but was, I'm sure an extraordinary challenge to go through. Um, at the at the time, and then you ended up doing your your PhD, and I'd love to know yes. more about your research and and how you you ended up in integral health. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, I was kind of I continued uh, researching the mind and reading about that. I was very interested, and then um, in one moment, I kind of thought, well, maybe I should look for a program that can kind of take me through some kind of um, you know um, specific kind of more. Um, uh, more um, kind of tailored education around mental health and integral health and things like that. So I found a program. Uh, it was at the California Institute for Human Science. Um, it was a PhD program in inter integral health, which, which is basically looking at human health from the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual uh, perspective. And uh, yeah, and, and then I I took the PhD more thinking that, you know, it can be a way to kind of have some structure around my learning, but I really didn't have, I didn't have a goal in mind. And um, I think that's one of the things it's like, sometimes we just don't know what we're going to learn. Um, so I kept, kept kind of open-minded. And then I, um, I discovered this whole paradigm of non-duality and integral health and kind of um, the level of experience that's beyond the conceptual mind. And what is that? what does that mean and what does that feel like you know um, and i realized that actually accessing that level of awareness and that level of consciousness has a lot to do with um 
sustainable mental health and kind of prevention of um, common mental disorders. I'm making so many notes as we go along here. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to start with some questions, if that's okay, because I'm super curious. What is the mind? <laughs> that's the best question. I love that question. Um, so yeah, uh, what do you think? I believe that, so I don't believe, I think that the mind, I experience the mind as the chatter that I observe when I am aware enough to bring my attention into the present moment. Mm -hmm. That is what I think the mind is. It's just that chatter that I, that endless chatter and conversation that goes on inside my hyper brain 24 seven. That is what I think my mind is. <laughs> uh, that's a great explanation. Uh, so yes, that is a part of the mind, but it's not the whole mind. Uh, so that's where kind of the philosophy of mind comes in. And that's why I think it's kind of important to, to talk about that, right? So what you are talking about, this chatter in the mind is actually our default mode network. Uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, so the default mode network is essentially this story, this narrative that we always have whenever we, we're not focused on something, right? Uh, and it just kind of goes on and on. It has a life of its own. <laughs> uh, but the whole kind of um, idea behind the default mode network is is it gives us a default mode <laughs> that we can kind of operate from, right? Um, and the main question um, with the default mode is how does something affect me? Right. So, for example, in this crisis today, um, you know, that's a big question. How will this um, how will this crisis affect us? You know, and when we're engaged in this kind of self-referential uh, questioning too much. Right. There's a certain healthy level of, um, you know, wondering how will something affect me? Uh, that's OK. But if you kind of are constantly that mode of thinking, then as you can imagine, that can really increase the level of anxiety because we don't really have the answers at that level, right? Mm -hmm. In the default mode network, we just kind of have this story that's going on, right? Uh, whenever our mind is not focused on something. So that's why things like focusing your attention, and I know you, um, you're also an expert on that is like how do you focus your attention as an athlete right how do you kind of focus your energy how do you make sure you don't you're not distracted all the time uh things like that so that's a default mode network and then the mind is really uh you know it's much more complex than that um and i don't know how philosophical how philosophical you'd like to go but basically the qualities of the mind are that it is embodied which means that there is a mind-body connection, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why things like exercise, things like nutrition, things like proper rest, you know, they're extremely important for the mind. Um, and then the mind is also emerging in nature, which means that the mind can be developed. It is constantly learning and growing either at the conscious level or the unconscious level. And those kind of operate differently. So uh, they're kind of interested, interesting to look at. Um, and then the mind is also relational in nature, which means that the health of our mind depends on the health of our relationships with ourselves, with others, and with nature. First extension question is, how does one pivot from when the default mode network is active into a state of greater focus? Yeah, so that's kind of like a muscle that activity of kind of first becoming more aware, 
of, you know, am I currently in the default mode network? And what I'm actually really interested in, um, and I don't think there's research out there for that, is, you know, how does it feel? What is the experience, the physical experience of when we're actually engaged in that default mode network? Because I think that, you know, people who are kind of used to um, going beyond the default mode network, like experienced meditators and, you know, people like that, they they can uh, know the, the different f- sense feeling of, you know, being in the default mode network and, and being in this more natural, relaxed state of being where things are more kind of, uh, there's an openness, you know, to, to new inspiration, to new ways of thinking and things like that. I'm furiously writing notes. Um, I love that. You talked about the mind emerging in nature <laughs> Uh, being emergent in nature and also relational in nature. Could you expand a little bit upon that? Because I think that that's curious that we can actually develop a healthy mind. And I'd love your insights into into how that might play out. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's really nothing different from developing a healthy body. I mean, you have to go through some pain to have some gain, right? You kind of have to exercise certain muscles. You have to increase your awareness, which means basically increasing the level of um, activity. Like if you think of it, if you compare it to like physical movement, when you're kind of exercising your mind, you're basically increasing your level of awareness, your level of consciousness, right? Um, so so the emerging nature of the mind is interesting is be- because it has the conscious and the unconscious level. So the conscious level we learn just through, you know, uh, learning, I mean, conscious learning, right? Um, and then at the unconscious level, it actually doesn't work the same. Um, it doesn't work on willpower. And that's why, you know, when we have some habits, right? Uh, so unconscious mind has everything to do with patterns of kind of uh, thought and uh, behavior and things like that, right? Kind of like just things that we've kind of we're used to um and and the unconscious mind is very important actually for our survival because it you know organizes information in very efficient ways right so we wouldn't survive without our unconscious mind but it's very important to know that the unconscious mind can also evolve and develop um and the way we do that is through things like imagination right so in sports psychology visualizations are you know very important part of um practice in a way, right? Um, so th- things like imagination or even positive auto-suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, stating things like, um, this is how I'm going to be today. And, you know, kind of giving yourself more positive reinforcement um, can really go a long way. I can, okay, I can talk about this for hours. So here right. we go. Um, I'm so I'm so happy right now. So I heard <laughs> and I'm beginning to get some clarity from you around awareness versus consciousness versus unconscious. And I detected Mm -hmm. possibilities around willpower being involved in the conscious mind where habits and patterns are more involved in the unconscious mind. And we can train that through imagination and visualization. Is that a correct interpretation of some of the things that you just said? Absolutely. It's excellent. Can you can you like just walk me through co- awareness versus conscious versus unconscious? Because I'm still 
Yes. So the way you can kind of think about it is uh, we have a lot of unconscious patterns. So if you think if you think about an iceberg, right, the unconscious mind is kind of like what's happening at the bottom of the iceberg. It's much larger. It's much, much more robust. It's really all these powerful processes, right, just like in a computer um, that are going on at the subconscious level. Uh, but um, basically, through our awareness, we can bring things from the unconscious level to the level of consciousness so that we know, oh, okay, I, don't, I now see this pattern, you know, it's making me feel this way, and this is what I do when I feel this way. You know, you just kind of have the cognitive behavioral pattern um, that you can kind of identify, or other people can tell you, you know, hey, Greg, I noticed you're doing this, you know, and then you're like, wow, I wasn't even aware. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of how the, you know, so the awareness kind of helps us bring things from the unconscious to the conscious mind. Okay, that's super helpful, especially now, one of the practices that I've been observing a lot, because when you do podcasting with a lot of different people, you see patterns emerge. And I've seen mm -hmm. journaling as a consistent pattern amongst high performers. Is journaling a tool that we can use to gain some clarity around mm -hmm. and awareness around conscious versus unconscious and mm -hmm. the habits and patterns that emerge for us? Absolutely. That's a perfect tool. That's one of the best tools, you know, because it kind of help, helps us reflect. So every time we reflect our level of, of awareness, we're kind of practicing that awareness muscle, right? So when we're refle reflecting on our thoughts, emotions, on our actions, when um, again, yeah, through journaling is is really a perfect way to kind of help us through, um, kind of work things through a little bit, right? Got it. And so that working through is part of the transformative process. And I know that you are interested mm -hmm. in non-duality and openness mm -hmm. which leads to effortless transformation and growth i'm mm -hmm. really really curious about non-duality mm -hmm. so could you take us into what that is you're the only one <laughs> it's the only one okay well, there's, I'm just joking. it's like the, it's like the one person that bought my last <laughs> book so that's cool <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's actually gaining uh, gaining more uh, kind of understanding, I think, or even a movement, I think, because especially now during the pandemic, you know, it's a perfect non-dual example where, you know, there's a virus or so something that happens in nature cannot be fixed in any way. And, and if a change uh, happens in one aspect of nature, it will kind of affect everything, right? So the virus is kind of like an example of, Nature doesn't recognize um, these, um, you know, conceptual ideas around borders and, you know, where it should be, where it shouldn't be. And it just kind of shows you the power of nature, right? Um, so the whole thing with non-duality is that we need to kind of go beyond the thinking mind to really experience um, reality more directly, right? Whatever that means. So again, with, you know, just like with exercise and with sports, it's a felt experience. And the more you can feel your, your body, for example, the more you're going to be able to prevent injuries and things like that. You need to be kind of connected, right? So non-duality is kind of like the ultimate fact that we're so interconnected um, that, you know, we just think we're separate, but we're actually, um, you know, completely interconnected. So that's why when you're in a non-dual paradigm, the question is no longer how will something affect me, right? 
But the question becomes, how will I relate to everything that's happening around me? And and not just that, but also how how is it affecting everyone? And how are we going to kind of collaborate to resolve resolve a crisis, right? So it's kind of like, an, I think, a necessary paradigm at this time. Is that like, do you foresee this as being, to some extent, an evolution of humanity, like where humanity needs to go next and that we are dissolving um, our individuality, let's say, and and merging into like a consciousness where everything is connected? Is that what, what you see possibly happening? Well, yes, I see us being more aware of that, <laughs> that everything is interconnected, that we're all a part of this, you know, um, and that we need to work together. And that's why, you know, the whole thing with duality, for example, and duality is th thinking in terms of kind of opposites and extremes, right? So uh, kind of typical polarized thinking is like a du dualistic paradigm. So thinking between like good versus bad, right? Mm -hmm. We're constantly making this judgment, something is good or something is bad, right? Um, or thinking in terms of um, uh, mind versus body. That's another duality. Yeah. Um, or, you know. Us versus um, them. The, yes, the, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you see that the world is becoming more, let's say, dualistic right now or non-dual? No. no, I think, well, I think it's, that's a very good question because I think it was in a very uh, dualistic paradigm not that long ago. But now because of the um, pandemic, people are realizing, oh, we need to kind of switch into a different paradigm. Um, I think that's more understood now um, because it's just not sustainable. Right. And, and the whole like diversity and inclusion question that is now being brought up to the as kind of one of the main issues um, in organizations is all about going into the non-dual paradigm. Um, actually, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember yeah. being in New York uh, at the Open Center um, at one of the events. Uh, it was like a non-dual speaker, um, Rupert Spira. And um, there was maybe about 200 people there of all different races, ages, genders, you know. Um, and one, one person actually made a comment. They were uh, African-American. They said, you know, when I heard about non-duality, I realized that actually black is not who I am, right? Um, so I'm much more than the color of my skin. Um, so, and, and again, that's controversial because, you know, Maybe some members of the community will say, well, how can you say that? Or, you know, uh, people would not really understand. But the whole idea behind non-duality is that, that we're much more than our gender, which we're much more than our nationality. We're much more than our skin color, you know, uh, as human beings. I really, really like that thinking in that, it, like, as soon as you started saying that, I immediately went to... Um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and and uh, diversity and inclusion and it reminded me so much of what I talked about when I when I had Dr. Ivan Joseph on the show my show uh, originally mm -hmm. and how we can come together as a as a global community and and I also think that we need to be much more integrated into nature mm -hmm. and stop thinking of humans as separate from nature as separate from the ecosystem and when we view ourselves as an integral part of this planet and of our ecosystems and of all diversity that ultimately that's the solution that we need to get to 
mm-hmm. uh, for so many of the problems that we're faced with today, I think. Does that make yeah. sense? Absolutely. I mean, one of the main things now that we're seeing with the COVID pandemic is, for example, um, increased rates of loneliness, uh, right? So um, that's a that's another sign of, you know, we need deeper connections. We need more meaningful relationships. We need, you know, we need that relational muscle. We need to kind of exercise it. That's important for our survival. So in a pandemic where we're kind of, um, you know, isolated um, physically, we really need to understand, you know, the science behind belonging and sense of, you know, um, being a part of a community, right? That's really essential. How can we build or work the muscle of non-duality? How can we explore this? How can we find more connection? How can we build better relationships? How do we increase Mm -hmm. our non-dual awareness? Hmm. (laughs) It is a, you know, um, again, we could speak hours about this, but Maybe one of the most important things I can uh, say is that, you know, we need to basically um, learn to access that natural part of ourselves that's relaxed, that's authentic, that's, you know, uh, where we feel um, that we have a sense of who we are and it's kind of a healthy sense of self in connection with everyone else, right? Then we can go from there. Um, We can, we can... um, because a lot of times practicing that non-dual muscle means, you know, letting go of that um, chatter in the mind and kind of going more into a sense of being as opposed to do, doing all the time, right? Because we're so conditioned to just achieve and be successful and do and and uh, be on the go all the time, right? But again, that's not sustainable energetically, as you know. Um, so it's very important to kind of practice that relaxation muscle and get into that natural state. And then when we have something to do, we can be effective and we can be, you know, we can kind of, um, do it kind of with purpose and with energy and you know what I mean? So we're kind of conserving our energy better, but also always coming from kind of an authentic place. Um, And then heart rate variability also, the whole science behind heart rate variability is about kind of going from the state of activity to a state of relaxation, right? That's what heart heart rate variability really measures. Um, And it's one of the only, I mean, it is the only physiological way to measure anxiety and depression because if you have um, low heart rate variability, it means you're not able to, go into a relaxed state you cannot rejuvenate you cannot um, get a good night's sleep your cognitive ability declines right and that actually affects all the systems in the body um you know that ability to kind of go from an active to a relaxed state so i'm kind of excited about the science of heart rate variability because it can kind of be um, an actual thing that we can kind of measure and uh you know um there are different ways to improve heart rate variability right through exercise through nutrition uh, through spending time in nature and things like that. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, Dr. John James Rouse, talks about um, getting away from human doing and returning to a human being. And he mm-hmm. talks a lot about human doings versus human beings and the pivot yeah. that we need to make from be just being who, uh, like, of just do, 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 go, 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 busy, 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 into just simply stopping to experience life. And I wrote down earlier in my notes as you're speaking, feel your body, not your techno- not technology. And 
I was immediately thinking about when we train athletes, there's some days we ask them to wear no equipment and mm -hmm. don't measure your heart rate. Don't, you know, leave the GPS at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and triathletes freak out. You tell them to turn off their <laughs> heart rate monitors, they literally lose their minds. So, but I think it's important to go out some days and just feel your body and run to how you feel, not, not a, not a pace from a GPS unit. And so is that, am I getting that right? That this is all part of the process of just of experiencing things a little bit better and a little bit more deeply. Is that where we're trying to get to? Yes, that's exactly it. So it's the experience of health and the experience of well-being. You know, we need to know what that feels like and we need to feel it every day because otherwise, uh, you know, we're going to get depressed the way I got depressed when I was um, an entrepreneur running a business and not taking breaks. And, you know, it's just, it's not sustainable. And if we don't have a, that felt sense of how does it feel to be on the cusp of clinical depression? How does it feel to be perfectly healthy or, you know, like uh, to feel that vibrancy and a sense of aliveness um, and to really be able to gauge that every day. And it's not about, again, it's not about perfection that we have to feel amazing every day. You know, we're going to have our um, ups and downs, but it's very important that we're aware of, like, if our energy is down, why is it down possibly? You know, is it that we didn't get, get enough rest or we didn't have a nutritious meal or maybe we're dealing with something at the emotional level? So, again, emotional regulation can help us uh, manage our energy at the emotional level, as can, you know, um, experiencing things like gratitude, experiencing things like uh, being um, happy with yourself and kind of satisfied with what your accomplishments and kind of celebrating your own achievements and not just always be, oh, I need to do this and I need to do that, right? Yeah, we've talked a lot about looking back as well as looking forwards. And mm -hmm. um, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach taught me that you know, we need to take stock and give ourselves props sometimes and celebrate and congratulate yourself, which is not easy for me to do because I'm constantly forward focused. Uh, and so, you know, pausing to reflect on your accomplishments, pausing to be grateful, pausing to thank other people for what they've been able to do is hugely important. Just as much as we want to be setting goals, we we also want to be looking backwards and appreciating how far we have come. That is, again, not something that came easily, but it is definitely something I've been trying to work on doing more deliberately. Is that all part of mm -hmm. this as well? That's exactly it. So the word appreciation is a really important word, right? Because we're, we, um, we actually need to appreciate <laughs> each other and ourselves on a daily basis. It's essential for our survival. We need to experience positive emotions like joy and uh, hope and, you know, gratitude and things like that. Um, and actually, there was a really good book um, called Positivity, The Upward Spiral That Will Change Your Life by Barb Fredrickson. And I love it because she really presents research on positive uh, emotions. And she says it's not that positive emotions just kind of neutralize negative emotions. They're actually acting exponentially on our well-being, which means that, you know, they kind of open up new possibilities. Uh, they can help us build relationships. Um, you know, all of those are very important. And what she actually suggests is a, a three to one positivity ratio for optimal performance and optimal teams. And what that really means is, you know, we need to experience three times more appreciation than doubt in ourselves, right? And and I like that. I like 
having the ratio be kind of tell because it kind of tells you how important it is. Yeah, absolutely. There was a um, a coach that I met a while ago at a conference, and he did analysis of professional sports teams and the language of coaches, and that some of the top performing teams. Uh, the language used by the coaches was actually eight to one positive to negative. And so we can, mm -hmm. that's a, that's sort of like the crazy out there, you know, like. You can't you know, overdo it. <laughs> you can't overdo Like, that's great. That's great. That's great. Work on this. That's great. That's great. That's yeah. great. That's great. Right. Literally Maybe. is how it, how yeah. it ends up playing out, which is kind yeah. of crazy, but um, interesting. I'm curious also about change and transformation. And the reason why is because, we're going through a period of radical change, um, rapid change. Uh, we're coping and adapting to this new mm -hmm. world that we're faced with that's been brought upon us um, unwillingly, largely. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's an opportunity to reimagine the future, both for ourselves and for the world where um, we have a more interconnectedness with nature and uh, humans are able to reach their potential and and do what they love to do at the highest possible level. But change is often something that's uncomfortable people for people that they don't like. And mm -hmm. transformation is extraordinarily difficult. And yet when we consider it from um, as a natural process, it's mm -hmm. a very different perspective. So I'd love your take on that and how you how you think about change and transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and really mental resilience and kind of increasing mental resilience at this time is all about being able to kind of handle a higher degree of uncertainty, ha handle a higher degree of change and all of that. And uh, one of the most important things there is, you know, not to be kind of stuck in a fixed mindset that, you know, oh, I don't deal well, well with change or I can't handle change. This is too much to handle, right? Because um, we need to kind of have a, a more of a growth oriented mindset that really believes that, you know, we can develop our skills, both at the conscious level and the unconscious level, like I, like I said, we can have many tools to kind of um, do that. And it's important to kind of believe that, you know, we can, we can learn to handle change better, right? Um, uh, so I would kind of, I'm, I'm trying to kind of explain and, um, and talk to people about that more. All right, final question, final thought for you. Experiencing reality, moving beyond the thinking conceptual mind, any thoughts you have to help people begin to move in this direction of expanding their awareness, thinking about things a little bit differently, and yeah. how we might be able to move move forwards from here? Yeah. So thank you for asking that as the last question. <laughs> so it's about kind of um, becoming more aware, number one, and being just very easy on ourselves, because like you said, this is extremely difficult you know, none of this is easy uh, because we have these, you know, the ways that we used to do things and now everything has to change. But increasing our awareness about our thought process, about our emotions, you know, learning how to experience those more directly and allowing them to kind of rise up and inform us, right? Um, and then um, really kind of noticing when we're in a rigid or some kind of repetitive self-referential pattern that is about fear and worry. And um, we need to understand that if we worry 
every day, we're going to be able to worry more and more, right? That's all, that's neuroplasticity. That's what it's all about. So we really don't want to allow ourselves to start worrying about many different things. So we kind of need to catch ourselves and then use some of these experiential tools, um, whether it's emotional regulation or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, or even things like exercise, you know, things like that, um, to just really break down those patterns and be able to kind of experience experience things more in a more integrated way. Um, so yeah, we we can basically uh, with practice start kind of seeing those rigid structures that is really the default mode network, you know, which is kind of telling you always the same story, right? And we can try to kind of just, um, you know, not take it so seriously, <laughs> but almost like allow, allow ourselves to see beyond that into a more beautiful landscape of, you know, what life is all about. One of the things that meditation, I think, has enabled me to do is to notice the default mode network, notice the ruminating thinking patterns. And then the second that I'm aware of them, I'm like, oh, that's that's what that is. And then it just stops. Yes, and yes. it brings you back into the present moment. And you're like, oh, look, there's a nice tree, right? It's just, it's incredible how that just enables you, that practice enables you to literally stop the default mode network in its mm -hmm. tracks and bring yourself back to awareness. It's kind of cool. I It always blows my mind how accessible this is for everyone. Because the moment we start practicing it, it's really accessible, but it's it's about creating the habit of kind of being in that state, this natural state of relaxation and kind of contemplation, you know, um, just being at it most of the time so that we can kind of, again, act with more energy and more authentically. Uh, but again, it's about practice. So um, it's it's not easy. Yeah, no, it just takes practice and time and patience, and eventually it gets it gets a little bit easier. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. If people want to learn more about what you're up to and get in touch with you, where can they find you online and explore some of your work and some of your thinking? Great. So they can find me on um, uh, LinkedIn, on Facebook. I have a website, uh, nondualperspectives.com where I kind of update my work and I have also a Facebook um, page for non-dual perspectives. So uh, yeah, I always love hearing um, people's you know experiences and uh, any questions. I'm always open to kind of chatting about these things. So uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Dr. For Elena, thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, amazing insights and super helpful and uh, has really, you know, inspired me to get back to my practice of, thinking, you know, deliberately training the way that I think to just expand the way that I, I perceive the world. So I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us today. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for the very warm, warm welcome and your invitation. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Ellie, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. I'm excited to uh, learn more about what you're up to as well. So um, but as we were logging on, the, the original platform that we were going to use for this didn't work. And you immediately jumped into uh, cognitive flexibility. So why don't we start there just since that's pretty much this theme for, you know, this entire last significant stretch of time, everyone just needs to be cognitively flexible, but like, why not? Let's dive in at that point and see where we land, see what's going, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great place to start. As you said, this kind of resistance we have to change, right? As human beings, like our insula just wants us to like, know what's happening because for survival it's really helpful if you know that like the last time you walk through this part of the woods a tiger ate your friend that's more useful for survival than remembering that there was a nice flower and so we are both you know we have this negativity bias right we remember what was dangerous and scary and we don't want there to be dangerous and scary things so we're resistant to any kind of change 
Um, so it's kind of funny just in the context of thinking about getting on and off a Zoom call or like a Teams meeting or like, which platform are you on? And like, now I'm resistant yeah. to that changing or like it didn't work. And so it's really interesting when we start to think about well-being or feeling less stable during these times, you know, how much that ties into our maybe uh, not like natural ability for cognitive flexibility. Um, and I brought up that term because the area I research mindfulness, uh, one of the outcomes of mindfulness has been shown to be cognitive flexibility. Oh, isn't that cool? So let me see if I can paraphrase this and, and ensure that I understand. So basically um, I'm walking through the woods. So it's helpful for me from like an evolutionary perspective to know and be aware of danger and to be contemplating that maybe, you know, I've got to have my alerts up. And I certainly feel that when I walk through the woods with my kids. And then when we arrive in a situation and maybe it didn't go well before, we're carrying that over. So I've had a few bad experiences on one of these platforms, which shall remain unnamed. And I, I hate using that platform now. So that's me literally being cognitively inflexible even though it's random. Like I know that sometimes every one of the platforms works and sometimes none of them work. So it's really kind of irrational, but maybe mindfulness practice, bringing myself into the moment the platform happens to be working that we're on right now. That's the solution. Is that, am I paraphrasing that right? Yeah. And it's great to kind of start to think about, yeah, how does it apply? Like something I think is always fascinating about learning like neuroscience about our brains is it can seem kind of like complicated or maybe like, oh, it's not for me. But I think, you know, any understanding we can have about how the brain functions kind of like intrinsically should make sense to us because it's our own brains. Like we've been functioning with them for a while. And it also should then apply to like every situation we experience because it's like us and our brains in the situation. So you were just equating like, you know, how we could think about say how we've evolved to pick up danger in the woods to how you feel like a sense of danger related to a certain platform that hasn't worked for you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we can also think about this, like say with our emails, right? Like if you've ever experienced, you know, the email popping and you just see it in the corner and you feel like huh, in your body and it's cause your body's being like danger response. Like I don't feel safe with this person emailing me or like danger response. I don't feel safe with this platform cause it like didn't work last time. And so I think starting to realize like how the neuroscience, what we know about the brain, that we have this, like, you know, this alert from our amygdala saying like fight or flight, like danger. Um, and that danger can really help us survive. Like it can be helpful to be like, oh, I feel danger related to this like online platform or my email. Cause I had a bad experience. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's maybe informing you to like check earlier that it's working or, you know, check that, like, where is this coming from with this person? Do I need to be careful about how I respond to their emails? So it's like giving us helpful information, but then if we become caught or trapped, this is where the flexibility part comes in. If we aren't able to like be aware, this is where mindfulness comes in of like how we're responding, then it means that we can become very rigid or inflexible. And so we might be like, Oh, I've been invited to this meeting on this platform. I'm not coming. And like, maybe it's appropriate for us to be like, Hmm, I know that I feel some danger. So I'm going to like log in early and check in and like take care of myself or maybe suggest a different platform. Like there's nothing wrong with being flexible. Like we were, we were like, Oh, we'll go somewhere else. Um, but we could have both shut down and been like, the platform's not working. We're supposed to record this podcast. We can't change this. Oh, everything's ruined, right? Like that would be like the kind of extreme rigidness that we can have as humans if we kind of let our fear response take over. And so having some awareness, you know, to that response can really help us be flexible and be like, well, let's try another platform. We'll and just, like, we'll we'll just go over here and do it, do it anyway. How does one develop more awareness in the moment when 
something's happening. Like, how do you become more aware of like your body sensations, your mental state, and even become aware of your own inflexibilities so that you can let that go in the moment and move in a better direction? Yeah. And like, what a fascinating thing. Like, wouldn't we assume that like, I know what's going on inside and around me? Like, isn't that like a function of being human? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like think about, think about the fact that we're actually doing something. It's not serving us and we have absolutely no idea. Right. Like, it's amazing. I do so many things like mindfulness practice has revealed to me and ongoingly reveals to me how often I am doing things throughout my day that like cause myself little bits of harm, like telling myself, like, you're not doing that good enough or you're, you should work faster. Like all these assumptions I have, these kind of like little embedded ways that I can narrate my day um, that I'm not aware of. We'll come back to like how we become aware because it's a great question, but just to start with the sharing of like, what are we not aware of and like, how does it affect us? Yeah. Um, How did you get started in all of this? I'm sort of curious about like the origin story for you becoming fascinated and interested in mindfulness. Cause I know it's big now, everyone's aware of it now, but it certainly wasn't five years ago, 10 years ago. Like how did this all start for you? Totally. Yeah. And just to say it is this kind of amazing, like exponential growth in terms of interest. If we look at peer reviewed articles or even like, you know, for those of you listening, if you think like, have I heard the term mindfulness recently? And like, Probably like I have family members who are always sending me articles now from like the New York Times or like all these places that are like, hey, try this mindfulness thing. <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah, my my origin story, that's always the the best box office hit. Right. Yeah. Um, but I actually went to my first retreat uh, with uh, Zen master and Nobel Peace Prize nominee at Thich Nhat Hanh um, when I was 10 years old. So it goes a ways back. Um, my, my father is a retired physician now. My mother, a retired theater director. And they were interested uh, before it was popular uh, in, this, in this mindfulness thing. They became interested in how it might inform our communication as a family. They had read some of his books and works and they were just interested kind of before it was popular. And so we uh, packed up our bags and headed off to a retreat. He was teaching, uh, doing a tour, a teaching tour in the United States. And we didn't really know what we were in for, uh, but we we went and we experienced this mindfulness thing. And he's he's known as founding engaged mindfulness, this idea that it can be more than just sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed and meditating, which it can, great for functional and structural brain modification, um, but that it can be kind of all kinds of other things that mindfulness can like integrate into daily life, be, a, you know, informative of how you speak how you listen, you can think about it while emailing. Um, So that was kind of the roots of my interest started when I was 10 years old. And then as someone who loves learning, I love research, I'm trained as a qualitative researcher. um, I wanted to start unpacking it kind of from a neuroscience research perspective. So that's a bit about how I came to be at SickKids now. Very cool. And what's, what are you discovering on the neuroscience of it? And I'm also interested in like functional and structural changes because I've seen the MRIs of you know, white matter tracks growing in the brain. So just curious as to what you're discovering lately around the neuroscience of all of this. Totally. Yeah. And again, for anyone listening, when we hear things like structural and functional brain modifications, it can sound like really particular or like it's not something we can relate to. But I think what I love about the neuroscience, again, it's our own brain. So you can kind of think for yourself, like if you do something new or you try something new or you send your attention to a particular task, like cooking 
a new dish or maybe training at the gym in a different way, the first time you do something, it's kind of hard. You don't exactly know what's going on. And then as you do it more and more, you kind of know exactly what's going on. Um, and from a neuroscience perspective, we would say like where your attention goes, neurofiring flows. So you fire neurons in your brain as you do stuff and you build new connections in your brain. Uh, so like a really simplistic way, when we say that we're seeing structural and functional modifications in the brain, we're kind of just saying like, yeah, we can start to see the new connections you're forming when you try something new. That's very cool. That's the the danger of doing it like an MRI scientist. I'm like, ooh, functional MRI. Oh, diffusion tensor imaging. I can track function and structural changes. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, no, I'm just making my brain better, which is actually all that we really need to know. And that whatever you do rewires your brain positively or negatively. And I love that sentence that you said, which I can't remember now, as your attention. Where attention flows. So where attention goes neurofiring flows and connection grows. So good. So if I do, how do I, how do I tweak that to ensure that my brain is getting better and not worse? Like what are the things that we can do to ensure positive brain growth? Well, totally. And it's also this interesting question, like, what do we think? I mean, just as a qualitative researcher, I'm like, ooh, let's unpack the assumptions yeah. embedded better and not worse. And what does that mean? But hundred percent, like totally. Absolutely. Theoretical. theoretical. But, but this interesting thing, right. Is like, if we have this intention, maybe as, you know, as humans to like actualize our, like maybe kindest self or most compassionate self or most um, engaged self, or, you know, from a, I'm doing research with physicians right now. What does it mean to have like patient centric care that like, help sustain and maintain like the capacity of the physician and support their patient, right? Like, so, you know, what might that look like? Um, and so I think what's interesting about your question is like, for me, mindfulness, what I'm seeing in the results is it has this real potential to like undergird our ability to direct our attention where we want. So maybe if what we want, what we're moving towards is like, occupational spaces where physicians can thrive or like ways that we can be like kinder with our families. If these are like the ways we want to build connections in our brains, how do we do that? And for me, mindfulness is kind of this, this beautiful puzzle piece of like the pragmatic, like practical training pathway to doing that. And so I think that's what I'm seeing. That's what excites me about it. What is mindfulness? Oh, I just wrote a 90 page literature review on that. Do we have 10 hours? We have as much time as you want to take. And I promise you, everyone will stick around the entire time to listen to the entire thing. Cause I am so confused by this. And like, I've heard many things. I think I know in general what it is for me, but I would love your 90 page summary of what, what it is. Um, and yeah, and well, I'll start by saying that I really love hearing that you know what it means for you. Because I think for me, the more I research it, um, so I'll share what it means for me and some of the kind of perspectives and lenses that I like to bring to it as definitions so we can have a few bite-sized kind of ideas. Um, but I think just starting with that idea that mindfulness needs, needs to mean something to us, that it only happens like in our own minds. So I can explain mindfulness, but having brought it into like elementary schools with children and then working with adults and in post-secondary, you know, the more you practice, the more you're like, it has to mean something to the individual. Um, so I really like that you kind of embedded that in your question. Um, okay. It was an accident. It wasn't mindful, but go carry on. It's all good. you like, yeah, I did this on purpose. Yeah, I know. Like, that was a happy bonus that just happened. So. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so for me, I think, you know, the first thing is I really like to recognize that like mindfulness or contemplative practice has roots in every culture in the world. And so there's so many like lenses that we could bring to it and it's not owned by any one culture or one institution. Um, but as I shared the kind of reflexively, the lenses that I bring to it is this long-term I have uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh's community. So from that kind of lens of like engaged mindfulness practice that has roots in kind of um, Buddhist philosophy. And then this other lens, which I come from the tradition of research and neuroscience. And so those are the kind of two places that I like to draw upon when I think about like, what is mindfulness? Um, so I can share two what I would call like working definitions. Um, so Thich Nhat Hanh has kind of summarized or, or given the definition that mindfulness is the awareness of what's happening inside and around us in the present moment, uh, which I would say again is maybe simple but not easy. Um, and then there is also this great report that came out of the UK government did an inquiry into where mindfulness might be applied in public sectors. And they formally published a paper in 2015 that recommended mindfulness come into the sectors of business, education, healthcare, and the criminal justice system, um, which is pretty fascinating. And their definition um, is has some similarities but differences, um, but they basically describe mindfulness as paying attention uh, to what's going inside and around us um, with an attitude of kindness and curiosity. And so they're kind of looking at attention, looking at this, this ability to pay attention to what's happening in the present moment, um, and then bringing in this idea that we do this with this kind of novel attention, which is filled with kindness and curiosity, which isn't how we always pay attention to things. I was sharing, you know, earlier, I often am like berating myself for not doing something faster or, you know, these different ways that I narrate to myself that aren't necessarily kind and curious. Um, that's brilliant. And I think that my definition of mindfulness for myself is quite similar. I think the best example is probably just like recently, my son was on the couch next to me he was reading a book and it was just a really cool parenting moment. Right. And so I was just like trying to study every single little detail of that moment and like embed it in my brain so that I can remember it in five years, 10 years. So for me, that's like mindfulness, right? You're like fully in the moment, deeply appreciating what's happening around you, trying to like really focus in and just experience it in every way that you possibly can so that you can just, enjoy and and remember it. so that was that was pretty cool is that a fair interpretation of what that might mean totally yeah and, and it's wonderful what you're describing and i'll add something to it which is in mindfulness i always say people will ask me like is a moment like that a moment of mindfulness or even often i get a question about like is exercise mindfulness because we're very focused we're in the present and so a lot of those kind of attentional controls or regulations that we might see in a mindfulness practice can be in that moment. And so I like to say, absolutely, that's mindfulness. And we just want to add in, if we can, some metacognitions. So like in that moment, as you were doing that, if you were also like, not only am I paying attention in this way, I am aware of being aware in this way. Yeah. That like little extra step really brings in when we look at the kind of outcomes from mindfulness that might be cognitive flexibility, Values clarification is another. So being like really aware of what's important to us right now can help undergird our sense of well-being and spending time in that way and like noticing those moments can help us to do that. So there's lots of these kind of benefits we see come from having both the attention at like one level. So I'm really paying attention 
and I'm aware that I am choosing to pay attention is that like extra bit. So if you're doing an exercise and you're like, I'm very present moment, I'm focused on my breath on the steps, like you've got that one level. And then if you say, and I'm going to intentionally like notice that I'm noticing and notice if my mind wanders and like be kind to myself and not say like, you're no good at this exercise, but like, oh, you're enjoying the exercise. Then like, I can kind of level up. So also I think mindfulness, one thing that I've seen in the study I just did with physicians is it doesn't, often we think we don't have time for mindfulness. Like I can't add something else to my day, even though I kind of think it's a good idea. But what you just gave an example of is like, you didn't have to find a time of something you weren't doing already. You just turned a moment with your child, like into a mindfulness practice. And so for me, that's what like engaged mindfulness is about is like, how do we transform our everyday activities? Something we're going to do anyway, say like brushing our teeth. If I'm brushing my teeth, I could also be drafting an email in my head, but I can't also like be writing the email and brushing my teeth. Mm. So like, why don't I take that moment to instead practice some of these basics of mindfulness, awareness of what's happening inside and around me in this moment, letting my mind have like a bit of a break from the constant like clutter that I have. We say disconnect to reconnect more fully. So how do we kind of take these like micro moments or like small doses of mindfulness in the day just by like transforming our everyday activities? And so your example is a great example. I love that additional clarification of awareness of awareness, which is kind of very meta, but that's kind of cool. Um, I think that's that occurs when and when that occurs, my understanding is we create alpha brainwave states, which is kind of neat and um, fascinating. I would love your interpretation of, so when I practice meditation, I notice that there is a chatter, there is some discussion, there is a a, a nonstop rambling chatter of whatever that goes on inside my brain that occasionally I manage to let go of and quiet and be fully present without my mind wandering and, and some sort of voice chattering away. I'm curious about what is that voice? And when the mind wanders, is that a bad thing? Or is it just something to be aware of and and let go of to bring yourself back into the present moment? And maybe I'll just sort of wrap that up with, um, and uh, would wrap that question up with, um, I had someone that I was working with and they said, yeah, no, I tried meditation. And all, you know, I was just like, all I could sense was that my brain was just like all over the place and I had this voice talking via the other time. So I'm no good at meditation. I was like, well, actually, I think that's meditation. So you're actually really good at it because you were aware of what's, and he, the person was just like thoroughly confused. I'd love your clarification of like the voice, the chatter, the activity, all that stuff that's going on and quiet, not quiet, like anything around that would be great to clear that up. Cause I think it's a confusion point point for a lot of people who are just starting out and begin to notice the chattering mind. Like, what do we do about it? If anything? Oh, I love these questions. They're so good. Um, because I think, well, first off, like I get asked these so often. So I think they're really good points for clarification. Exactly what you just said. I think there's, you know, kind of two misconceptions of mindfulness that I run into a lot. Um, So one uh, is, I mean, just that you can be bad at it. So let's make sure to come back to that one. Um, And then also, yeah, that it's supposed to be like this switch we can flip to like be empty or calm or like immediately peaceful or something. Um, And so to your question of like, is it right or wrong or good or bad for your mind to be wandering, you know, going back to where we started the conversation, which is it's really natural 
that our mind wanders. It's actually our default mode network, the DMN in our brain uh, is sometimes called the mind wandering network. And it's called the default network because it's what we default to, right? If you space out, your mind's not doing nothing. It's like checking out, like it goes back to survival reasons, right? It wants to know like, what are my social connections? Am I safe? Do people like me? Am I accepted? Like all these things, right? You want to be planning for your what's coming up. To do that, you're reviewing the discussions you had earlier. So there's nothing wrong with your mind wandering. It is your default. Um, and so if we're going to practice a meditation and we immediately get mad at ourselves for our mind wandering, well, we've lost the attitude of kindness and curiosity because we're judging ourselves. Um, but also it's what we're going to do. Um, so definitely I would say, you know, the first step in uh, practice is not clearing your mind. It's the first step is your mind's going to wander default. And then the kind of the bicep curler, like the workout of mindfulness is to notice that the mind's wandered and like bring it back. Um, and so I think that I love thinking about mindfulness practices as kind of like mental fitness. Um, Cause like physical fitness, it gives us this permission um, to both be like, have challenges with it. Like if I went to throw a football right now in a football field, I would say exactly what your friend said. I'd be like, I'm no good at this. It doesn't work for me. Cause I don't yeah. know how. <laughs> right. Um, but some reason when it's like our mental life, we think we should be able to do it in this like exact way right away. And so I think coming to that question of like, can you get it? Can you do it badly or wrong? It's like, well, you can do it differently. And on different days, depending on like the conditions of your mind, your mental discourse is going to be like more up, more down. You're more worried. You're more not. Um, so the challenge of like keeping your mind on say an anchor, like the breath, if that's the kind of meditation you're doing or a sound or the sensation of brushing your teeth or paying attention to what your child is saying, like any of these anchors that we might use for attention to kind of cultivate this awareness um, we can have a challenge keeping our attention there because of, as you said, the mental discourse, what's ever going on around us in a global pandemic, we've got a lot of extra mental load. And so yeah. kind of, as I say, like that, that weightlifting we're doing, um, first off, if you haven't practice mindfulness a lot, then your muscles are weaker. So like, it's going to be more tiring. It's going to be harder. You may not be able to keep it up as long. And so all these things are totally natural parts of building a skill. Um, and so I just think that, well, first off, uh, to say anyone who tries mindfulness or hasn't done it in a while was like, well, that was hard. I can't do it. You know, it's a lot like saying, well, throwing a football is hard. I can't do it. If you yeah. want the skill set, um, it means putting some time in. But again, that idea that time is the barrier to mindfulness, we want to problematize as well, because you just gave the example, you can do it while you're sitting with your kid on a couch. And so those are definitely two areas that I, I think are so worth discussing and, and are really, I think, like a misconceptualization that's out there about mindfulness. How do we get started? If someone's interested and they're like, I'd really like to add this to my life and, and improve and, and, and explore this area, how does one get started? What are some introductory practices? Where do we begin? Totally. And I, you know, I think just like with physical fitness and where we started at the beginning where you're like, here's what mindfulness means to me. Mm. And so I think like with physical fitness, we need to select ways to work out our body and our minds that meet us where we are. You know, I, I love dancing. I grew up dancing. And so like, that's how I love to stay fit. And if I was like, the only way you can stay fit from now on is to dance. A bunch of people would just like, they just wouldn't. Right. Um, so I think the same thing is like to kind of figure out a few things, like what muscle groups are you targeting? Different types of mindfulness practices will develop different skill sets. Um, how many minutes do you have in your day? Where does it fit? So there's a lot of flexibility 
Um, but also I would maybe recommend as a starting point, uh, just like when we start anything, if you've ever taken a drawing class, when you start drawing like perspective on a hand, you use a ruler, you make a whole grid, you kind of are very structured because it can help when you're starting. So I think similarly, you know, something like a focused attention practice, which is what we might more think of as a traditional mindfulness practice. So sitting with your eyes closed, listening to some guidance or focused on your breathing, it's a good foundation to start with because it's really the basics of noticing your mind and starting to work on keeping its attention somewhere. So as a starting point um, to not pull a muscle, uh, I would recommend maybe considering, you know, a one to five minute focused attention practice. And that might be something you find an app for something, you know, there's like Headspace, Simple Hat, I mean, there's a ton of apps out there. And again, find the app you like, you might have like a voice you like or not. And again, that's like, find the right instructor for your like exercise class, or otherwise you're not going to do it. If you've done the basics, you've installed Headspace, you've been at it for a while, you feel pretty good about it. You're starting to get into a good rhythmic practice. You're noticing that you're better able to, uh, be aware of your mind when it's wandering and bring it back to the present moment. And you're looking for the next step. Where would you then then recommend someone begin to explore? Totally. And this brings me to something that I'm, I'm proposing in my dissertation, which is um, to think of mindfulness as both a collection of practices. So that might be like the method we're cultivating it with. So a practice and activity is like doing a meditation but also that it has a kind of intellectual or theoretical basis that we can think of as concepts. So we have a collection of practices, so methods we might use to build mindfulness, but also concepts, ways that we think about ourselves in the world. I'll give you a little example. Um, we have this idea, this concept um, in mindfulness um, called the four nutriments. And it's a, a framework that talks about the ways that we take in nourishment. And again, this is just a concept, um, but there's four parts to it. And I'll, I'll just introduce the first two to give you an idea about a mindfulness concept beyond a practice. So the first is how do we take in nourishment to our bodies? And so the first is edible food, right? We eat food. We know that we've kind of as a society accepted that that like nourishes our body in certain ways. The second is looking at how our other sensory impressions, what we hear, what we, uh, what we say, what we see are also forms of nourishment that we take in that can be both harmful or supportive, just like food. So you can imagine like certain kinds of news, right? You know, consuming that news to a certain extent um, can be helpful to know what's going on in the world and consuming a certain amount of news or social media to an extent can maybe make us feel exhausted or overwhelmed. So just like a bag of potato chips, I can eat a certain amount of it and it can be like fun and awesome. And I can eat a certain amount of it and it can maybe like not be so good for me. Um, this concept is a way to start thinking, right, mindfully about like, what am I consuming and how is it impacting me? And through that concept, I might also start to make different choices about how I'm interacting with the world. And so for me, a next step or even in concert with developing practices, which the apps are a bit more focused on, might also be starting to explore through books, podcasts, different talks that are available online, retreats, which are also online now and in person, um, to start exploring also the collection of concepts that can come with mindfulness. Because I think the way that practices and concepts work together um, to help us like develop a really wonderful set of mental practices um, can be amazing. Yeah. I love it. And what's your vision for the future? You're working on your dissertation now. What are you hoping to discover and share in the world? Like what difference do you think you're, you'd like to make in practice and 
in, uh, in the future. Yeah, I think, you know, for me in, in mindfulness, you hear this word, like we're looking to transform suffering, which can seem very heavy. Um, but I think in some ways it's really looking at like, how do we meet, skillfully meet like the challenges and complexities of life in a way that is like healthy for ourselves and those around us. So, you know, for me, I would hope that my research can open doors to making some of the practices and concepts that have been developed for like thousands of years more accessible. I love how they like intersect with the neuroscience. So, you know, I'm hoping to keep research I'm hoping to continue to do teaching. I have this like amazing opportunity right now. I'm working um, at the University of Toronto with the Faculty of Law, the School of Public Health, um, and also with the physical therapy faculty, um, and they're embedding it into their curriculums. And so for me, like bringing this into educational spaces is such a rich space. And also at SickKids, getting to work with physicians, with families um, as a way to kind of support, I think, on like the individual level, we want to support like transformation and healing and the ability to flourish. And then also like at a system-wide level, what does it mean to bring this in to maybe create like healthcare communities, educational communities, and beyond that, like societal communities that are, you know, informed by those attitudes of like kindness, compassion, curiosity. So that's like big and small. I, I want to change the world and I yeah. want us all to take care of each other and like be wonderful and like reach our full potential. Perfect. That's pretty much what I'm trying to do too. So I totally get it. That's all good. No problem. You fit right in. Welcome to the podcast. Um, if people wanted to learn more, where, what are some books? Who are some people that they should check out? What are some podcasts they might want to explore? Where can people get, where can people start learning more about this topic? Yeah. And again, like I'll offer some resources and also to encourage everyone, like choose your own adventure, like make mindfulness your own. So if you listen to one thing, you're like, that voice isn't for me. You're like, oh, I don't totally agree with that. Well, first stop and like check what your like internal like assumptions and biases are and like, what is it like watering in you? Cause like, that's a great mindfulness practice and then look for something else. Um, but yeah, so some places to start as I've shared, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, is one of my root teachers has written like over a hundred books, um, has a great app called the Plum Village app that's free and there's lots to explore on there. Um, John Kabat-Zinn is the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is a program offered in like almost all the hospitals in downtown Toronto. And he has a wonderful book uh, called Full Catastrophe Living. Um, I sometimes say I was raised on like John Kabat-Zinn, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Monty Python is like a good. Right. So those, those three things I would recommend. Um, Again, there's lots of amazing apps out there. Uh, Headspace um, has a more set program. Something like Simple Habit has a lot of different teachers on it, and both of them have like free tryouts. Um, Dan Siegel's work is also phenomenal. I've had uh, the pleasure of working with him, and he's on the West Coast. And he has he's a physician, and he's done work around attachment parenting, and he has some incredible books looking at the mind for young people. Um, and then also looking at how like quantum physics and like physics can inform our mindfulness understanding. So he's really fun if you're into that. Um, I'd also recommend for anyone who works with adolescents or teens, um, there's a physician on the West Coast from BC uh, who founded the Mindful Center at BC Children's Hospital, Zumbo. And he has a wonderful book called The Mindful Teen. And it's like a workbook that's a really practical way. He wrote it for teens to read themselves. Um, but for anyone, really any adult even, like, you know, what's written for teens is often the best stuff for us because it's just like really clear and straightforward. Um, and I'd also recommend the work of Shauna Shapiro and Linda Carlson, um, who have done some incredible work looking at bringing this into healthcare spaces. Um, and Linda Carlson is based actually in Calgary, and she does incredible work around bringing mindfulness to oncology patients. So there's, I mean, there's a wealth of resources out there, but those are some of the uh, 
the wonderful humans that I've had the chance both to uh, look at in my literature review and work with. And I should also give a shout out to Ron Epstein, um, who wrote the book Attending. And he's a physician who's brought mindfulness into medical education at the University of Rochester. And it's this beautiful book on him looking back at how his own practice really changed who he was as a physician and how he related to his patients. I love it. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Yeah, Um, I have a blog where I've been kind of tracking how I've been practicing and bringing mindfulness into my work as a graduate student. So awareness of the awareness. I'm both like researching mindfulness, but trying to research mindfully. Um, And so that's another research question of mine. And I have a a blog where I've looked at how I've been trying to do that. And I have to say right now, my favorite is taking mindful dance breaks throughout the day. Love it. Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sensitive to how much you've got to get done and all the different places that you're directing your attention. So thank you so much for directing some of it at us today. And we've learned a ton. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to hang out. This week, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Ellen Choi, a mindfulness meditation and human performance expert at Toronto Metro University, I believe, (laughs) is the new name for that institution. So that's super great. Uh, Dr. Ellen, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Dr. Greg Wells. It's really awesome to be with you. So we were just chatting before this about, you know, traveling and seeing friends. And you just made a really interesting statement that you feel like your nervous system has been dysregulated for so long. But when you got together with friends, you're laughing and joyful and it kind of brought you back to life. I want to dig into that a little bit more just because I think the world has been dysregulated for a couple of years now, if not longer. And I would just love your take on it. Like, what do you think's happening? And I, and then that'll obviously lead us into, you know, where do we need to go? I think our general baseline is so off. When I think about a dysregulated nervous system, think about how often We are just steamrolling through our day. And you feel this constant sense of urgency and this time pressure, it's just get through the next thing. And honestly, we have a four and a five-year-old now. And from the minute we wake up, you're racing the clock to make the school bus. And I'm listening to the words come out of my mouth. And I think about the mother I want to be in my mind. And then the words are like, just hurry up and put your shoes on, which is not the thing that I had in my mind. And this is the state of our nervous system. It's constant, go, 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 threat, 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 drive, drive, achieve more. And we have become incredibly accustomed to that. And getting out of it, for just a few days, allowed me to recognize what it felt like to not be in hyper arousal. It feels amazing and totally safe, totally free. And those are big words, but in your body, that actually feels like something. And it's so important. And in fact, if we are more proactive and diligent with some of the practices that we know are available to us, we can actually get there a little bit quicker or more consistently if we're paying attention and nurturing these things. But again, even as a mindfulness practitioner and researcher, it was so humbling to recognize how my day-to-day life forces me to be in this way that my body doesn't actually 
really like that much. Yeah, I don't think our minds like it. I don't think our bodies like it. I don't think our brains like it. I don't think our emotions like <laughs> it. But we've been that way. If, well, and you know, out of necessity to some extent, um, have been in a state of hyper arousal for an extended period of time. Obviously, getting around people who elevate you, who make your life better, and into an environment where it's easy for you to be at your best is one way of doing it. But maybe for those of us who don't have the ability to get on a plane and travel to see mm. someone right now, like job, mm. whatever. Um, I'm curious about some of the other practices that we might be able to use to help us to downshift a little bit to get out of the state of hyper arousal so that we don't snap at our kids to put on their shoes faster when we're getting ready in the morning. And of course, you know, get your shoes on is just can be absolutely anything it can be at home, it can be at work. But curious about practices that you think we might be able to implement right now to just downshift a little bit. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to talk about three. Great. So the first one is just, and you can do this formally, or you can do it informally. But we are just not present. And I almost don't like that word because it's just, it's played, it's dead, it's broken, like be here now, get present more. And when you start to practice for a while, you start to think you're present. You're like, I, I'm mindful, I'm present, but we're not. We're just always racing to the next thing or reliving something stupid you just said, you know, 60 seconds ago. And in these tough moments, if we can just show up, slow down and actually experience the moment for whatever it is without trying to control it, incredibly difficult, but so powerful, that's your first invitation. So notice, is your mind wandering all over the place? Are you aware of any physical sensation in your body? Do you know what the position of your tongue is right now? Can you feel your belly button? Where are your shoulders? Where is your breath? And then what are your expectations for this moment? All that pressure of who you think you need to be right now, can you just let that go? That's the first thing. The second thing, which I'm just, I'm, I'm all about it right now is cold exposure. I love cold exposure. The idea of hormesis or like gentle stress, safe stress, practice stress, and what it does for allowing you when things become actually incredibly difficult to show up in a way that you know that you're a boss, so powerful. Actually, uh, hope this isn't too much self-disclosure, but when I first step into ice cold water, your breath gets taken from you. So you gasp, so you go like, <gasps> and then you have to really actively regulate. And then I was arguing with my husband about something stupid that I can't even remember. And I felt my body do the same thing. And then I was like, oh, I know what's happening here. And so I, stepped in and started regulating my breath. And then suddenly I could take it down from like whatever offense that I was swirled up in to actually hearing whatever it was that he was saying and not insisting that I was right, but just 
trying to connect in a different way. And then the last thing, the last practice is this idea of, um, well, dyadic meditation. And I thought, I don't know if we have an agenda for today, but I would love to share it with you because why not? You up for it? Absolutely. Totally. A hundred percent. I need all of the help that I can get in this. I'm, I'm loving the cold exposure, doing that a lot, really practicing breath work and breathing and being present. But as you walked me through that a minute ago, I realized like, I didn't know where my tongue was and my shoulders were totally up and I hadn't taken a deep breath through my belly. So I, that felt really good as you reset me there. So yeah, wherever you want to take us is all so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thanks for, thanks for saying that. And it was the same for me when you first started talking, you know, I can tell you've done this a million times. You're super profesh and incredibly successful. And who am I to be sitting here talking with you? And I was caught up in that, that I stumbled over my own first words. And now I'm more present and I'm here with you. And it's a completely different experience. Um, anyways, let's get to this practice so that anyone watching can have a sense for it. And if they feel so inclined, it's actually, they've just turned it into an app. So it's P-U-U-R-app.com, pure app. It's a bit of a plug, but it's so powerful and it's got some empirical um, support and it's it's a modernized version of like a long-standing Zen tradition. So I'm going to ask you a question and then you're just going to answer it. So I'm going to guide you uh -oh. through a bit of a breath. I know you're so brave <laughs> and I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and find your breath in your own body, wherever it is. Good, and we're gonna take a deeper breath in and then hold your breath when you get to the top. So breathing in and hold. Good, and exhale, let it all out. You can make an audible exhale. <sighs> yeah, awesome. So thanks so much, Greg, for being up for this practice. The first question is, what are you feeling and what does stress, fear, and shame feel like in your body? Just in your body. So don't tell us any backstory. Just check in with what that actually shows up in your physical body. Um, so what am I feeling right now? Uh, just some energy in and around my heart, which is kind of cool. Obviously, it's because we're hanging out and chatting, which is really neat. Uh, and then what does stress and fear feel like? tension all through like just like a band um at sort of the bra strap level of of my of my chest and body and it's it's so unpleasant but yeah i can definitely you know i've had enough experience with stress to know what that feels like but that's what mm. it would feel like for me yeah thank you and shame do you know what shame feels like in your body um Pain in my head, I think, is probably mm. the best way to describe it. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Now I'm only picturing you in a bra, and that's weird. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's okay. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> okay, 
Wonderful. Yeah. So then next question. And this is really powerful. What shame talk and what love talk are you hearing in your head? So again, no backstory. And to give you an example, shame talk would be like, I'm not good enough at this. I'm failing here. I'm not working hard enough. It's the inner critic dialogue that just rides you. You should have written more yesterday. You should have worked out more. Oh, look at you. Are you having another cookie instead of a vegetable juice? I mean, I feel like you only drink vegetable juice, so maybe that doesn't fit. But just some of the daggers you might notice throwing at yourself. And then love talk is the encouraging, wiser, kinder words we might whisper to ourselves moment to moment. Um, so some of the daggers would be, you know, why are you so tired? You, mm. you know, there's no reason for you to be fatigued right now. Mm. Um, Cause I do push the limits all the time. So um, learning to rest, recover, regenerate better. It's a constant practice. That's why I love the cold water immersion in the saunas and exercise for me is so recharging. And then the positive talk recently has been all around. You're enough. You're doing great. Everything's working out. You know, all that sort of like just confidence, reinforcing confidence and the state that, that we're in and the place that we've gotten to. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much for that. So um, I'm watching the time. So I'm going to do one last question and it's going to go like this. Uh, what does compassion for yourself and compassion for others actually feel like in your body? Um, like just a light, it's just energy. It's sort of like relaxed. i I'm, I'm very, it's find it very easy to be compassionate and empathetic and loving towards others. That's, that's so easy. It's the compassion, love and empathy for yourself. That's always the grand challenge. Right. But when you get there, you just want to smile and you just feel good. And there's a bright shining light that exists sort of for me, it's in, in around my throat, maybe a little bit lower in my chest that whatever mm. chakra that happens to be, but yep, that's what, it, that's where I'm at. <laughs> It's your throat and heart chakra. Okay, thank you. There we go. <laughs> and it's white. All right. Yeah. Well, there's two more questions, but I'll leave our last segment of time for whatever you want to talk about. Honestly, I think that right now, what I'm just so thrilled that you were able to bring to us was this idea that we can install little tiny practices in our day to downshift and to take ourselves out of this hyperactive physical, mental, and emotional state that we've all been in. These practices are super accessible. You've shown us a few, you've walked me through a bunch of them. And I can tell you that right now, like I can't stop smiling. And when we first started the call, I think both of us were like, now oh, what are we going to do? Right. All this pressure. And now it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And it's, it's all good. And it just feels super easy. Um, Jen just mentioned in the chat, self-compassion feels like a hug from the inside. So, I mean, that's super cool that even some of the people watching are getting a sense of, you know, this and experiencing it as they watch us go through this exercise. So I would encourage everyone listening to, you know, experiment, explore, downshift, take a moment and gain some inspiration. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people 
learn more about you or connect with you if they wanted to find out more about what you're up to? Hmm, I would say come visit my website. So drellenchoy.com. Amazing. Send me an email. Old cool. School. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Bye, Greg.